chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be going through the first 20-ish verses in there, and as providence would have it, this is where God has placed us, so uh, no special sermons to inaugurate our uh, meeting. We're just in God's Word where He has us, and that's in Mark chapter 7. If you're just joining us, uh, welcome. In our journey through the Gospel of Mark, last uh, couple weeks, we have examined um, what is probably described as his most famous miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000, and then that was followed by one of his most famous marvels, which was walking on water. And so, just as a way of reminder of what happened, because the narrative kind of is continuing, that... After feeding the crowds and then excusing the crowds and when withdrawing from the crowds, we uh, read that he obviously dismissed the disciples and he met them uh, on the top of the water as he walked across, kind of mid-sea. And immediately getting into the boat uh, to calm their fears, the seas calm and somehow the boat miraculously arrives resting on a shore, and it's a shore that's different than they expected to be, uh, but certainly was used to minister again. And as I've said before, the, the four Gospels, if they record uh, different stories, um, or the same story, I should say, they often provide different details about the same stories. And so the Gospel of John provided a little more detail about what had happened uh, particularly after the whole sea crossing and the feeding of the 5,000, what the crowds were dismissed, but many of them got into boats and started going across the sea themselves. And they actually were heading to Capernaum, which would be Jesus' home kind of base. He was born uh, or raised in Nazareth, but in his ministry years, he kind of centered on Capernaum. And so eventually, uh, Jesus makes his way up t- back to Capernaum, his hometown, and the crowds meet him there. And as you read in John chapter 6, here's what they say when they find Jesus, because they've been looking for him after he had left. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So these are the people he fed. He's like, you guys just want more bread. And he says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them very plainly, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So why would I bring that up? Well, we see that after He gets to Capernaum and after He scolds the crowds in many ways in kind of a very direct way about just looking for more bread, He warns them, like, you guys should be seeking for more than just bread, more than just earthly bread, but this eternal bread that satisfies eternally. And so after He says that in response, they say, well, what do we have to do? This is the question I believe that all mankind, men and women, young and old, ask when confronted, when they feel that spiritual emptiness that everyone feels. What do I got to do? And it's the wrong question. Jesus says that it's the wrong question. He says it's not about doing, it's about believing. See, everyone feels this kind of God-shaped emptiness, a, a sense of 
dare I say, unworthiness that we can't ignore. And it can only be filled with restored relationship with our Creator. But it doesn't stop us from trying to fill it. And many fill it with what we'll just call irreligion. So instead of filling it with a relationship with God, they avoid relationship with God by doing bad things. But there's others, many others, who fill that same emptiness with religion. They avoid relationship with God by doing really good things. So through the Gospels, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are introduced to the masters of doing good things. The Pharisees. And by all appearances, they are Bible-believing, conservative, moral men. But Jesus frequently exposes them in phrases like their whitewashed tombs, their blind guides, their pretenders. He exposes them as godly men who really don't know God. They created many godly traditions intending to help them be faithful and worship God better. But their heartfelt commitment to doing the work of God had actually resulted in their hearts being very far from Him. So far, they actually didn't believe. So in this morning's text, as we look at Mark chapter 7, I want to talk about three things very briefly One is the goodness of traditions. One is the badness of traditionalism. And the other is the internalness of sin. The internalness of sin. If you look at Mark chapter 7, I'm going to read the first 23 verses. And it says this, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. A little parenthetical here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled or dirty hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? Hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He said, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father or mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, well, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him and again said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
for the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within or out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What a powerful passage. Well, I want to begin by noticing, so as Jesus settles down in his hometown, you have this group of Pharisees and scribes who have arrived from Jerusalem. They're not centered in Galilee, they're centered in Jerusalem. So they've sent an envoy and they're ready to challenge the ministry of this uneducated peasant from the country that they've heard about. And they would be easily identified among the commoners of Capernaum, and they would have likely been honored with an invitation, as we see here, to eat with Jesus, the teacher. So as they prepare to eat, they can't help but notice the shameful behavior of the leader's disciples. They're not following the tradition of the elders and washing their hands before they eat. This is not just hygiene. This is worship. So as he is writing the Romans, Mark takes some effort to explain a lot of the Jewish customs because the Romans wouldn't understand them. These uh, traditions, or what he calls the tradition of the elders, were a collection of oral teachings that had provided commentary on the Mosaic Law. So it will be like a biblical commentary about what God means in the Bible. Now, these teachings were the different views of different rabbis or schools based on their interpretations of a particular law. And so the Pharisees held that these traditions were almost and likely as authoritative as Scripture. According to the law, the actual law of God, there were several ways to become unclean by touching, even accidentally, certain persons or, or things. And even though it wasn't commanded by the Bible, this tradition of washing hands was partly a safety precaution, but it was a very active way to declare their love for God's law. That was what their initial motivation was, which is not necessarily a bad one. There is a kind of goodness in traditions, though we read this and immediately like traditions bad. And I would argue there's even a goodness in many religious traditions. Uh, there's some very meaningful practices, maybe some you grew up with or some that you know others have or experienced. And some of those are very personal that no one may know about, maybe very familial to your own family. Some are very corporate in the traditions that you know, whether it be a different denomination or, or kind of church that you grew up with, there's certain traditions, and they can often help our worship. They can often help facilitate perhaps a deeper even connection with God for us. Many traditions act like fences. They are sometimes employed for just a season or 
maybe for some a lifetime, to help us honor God with our lives. There's sometimes a goodness to traditions. And even if they aren't explicitly commanded by God, they're usually not forbidden. Traditions, I think, can help us grow when we are immature. Traditions often can protect us when we might be vulnerable. We likely all grew up with some kind of traditions. I don't mean just holiday traditions, but I mean various religious traditions of how you do worship. Some very important faith traditions. And in many ways, these traditions serve to distinguish people. Which again, isn't entirely bad. And even though they sometimes separate us from others, they often unify us with others because we share some traditions. And so there is a goodness to traditions because I think at times, um, in the midst of a culture that's relatively fractured, and what I mean by that, if you grew up before, you know, 1980, you remember that on TV there were three stations right? Four, five, and seven. If you were lucky, you got 13, right? Radio, it was AM at times and FM, but still not nearly the kind of options we have today, which just serves as a picture of how fractured the world is and even what they listen to and and participate in and enjoy. I think sometimes in the midst of a culture that's relatively fractured and perpetually shifting, the familiarity of good traditions especially spiritual ones, can actually bring a sense of serenity at times and stability and even unity. So there's a goodness to traditions, but I would argue there's also a badness to traditions, even religious ones, especially when they go from familiar or helpful practices that unite us to authoritative doctrines that divide us. And that happens. A religious tradition is emptied of, I think, all of its goodness when it's used to measure another person's goodness and separate us from what we perceive as their badness. When the Pharisees condemn the disciples for having defiled hands, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah who had warned the Jews in Jerusalem hundreds of years earlier about the dangers of false worship that's characterized by external rituals. Ultimately, Jesus condemns them because the word of God had become subordinate to the words of men. The word of God had become subordinate to the words of men. He goes further to say that their love for man-made traditions has caused them to break God-made commandments. And he references another tradition that they practice By quoting the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, he also quotes part of Exodus 21 that says, don't curse your mother and father. So this is what you ought to do and what you ought not do in regards to your parents. And essentially, he speaks of the responsibility that the Jewish culture and really mankind had to love and provide and protect your parents as children as you get older. But the Pharisees found a loophole. And the loophole allowed them to avoid the pretty plain message of God. See, traditionally Jews allowed items to be dedicated to the temple. And so one particular school of Pharisees that he's referencing 
uses this practice to actually withhold what would have otherwise gone to support the parents. They're like, well, I've, I've given it to God, sorry. And so Jesus just says, you guys are hypocrites. And he also says, this is not the only thing you guys do. Traditionalism is when traditions go bad. Traditions won't hurt us, but traditionalism will destroy our faith and, I believe, the faith of others. And while it's unlikely many of us will condemn someone for not washing their hands today, well, maybe today we will, but usually not, we, if we're honest, we have our own personal rituals, our own preferences, our own worship styles, our own religious practices that we can wrongly elevate, even passively, into doctrines that discriminate. We do. Traditionalism is when I believe that something I do or something I support and put my energy and time and money towards makes me clean before God and makes me cleaner than other men. It's wrong when it becomes the thing, the tool we use to determine the cleanness or uncleanness of others. Now, not everyone plays this game publicly, but I believe most of us play it privately, sinfully calculating the godliness of ourselves and those around us based on what we practice or, dare I say, what they post or not. In essence, we make new little laws to measure the righteousness of ourselves and others, leading to a sense of superiority or feelings of inferiority. Now, sometimes we attach righteousness to rules that we make up. Other times, we attach them to God-made rules that may no longer apply, but we interpret them in particular ways. Sometimes we attach righteousness to things like Bible reading, prayer, theology, Movements we support, service we perform. Sometimes we attach righteousness to the very earthly things like clothing, how we school our kids, language we use, books we've read, positions we take, or even food we eat. We are a messed up bunch. Sometimes we wrongly attach righteousness to our economic statuses, to our educations, even to our ethnicities. Traditionalism is more than using a tradition to enrich our communion with God. It's using a tradition as the basis for our union with God and for our communion with others. Now, we've talked about the goodness of traditions and the badness of traditionalism. Jesus goes a bit further privately with the disciples to talk about the real heart of the problem. See, if not kept in check, a bad view of traditions will lead to bad theology, which is a view of God, which will invariably lead to a bad gospel. And what do I mean by that? It will lead to a wrong view of how I or someone else is deemed worthy before God. That's what I mean. A bad gospel. You see, there's an internalness to sin. 
When we believe we can clean up ourselves by doing something external, we fail to understand that our greatest problem is internal. And Jesus reminds the clean Pharisees that there's a real difference between sins and sin. We love to talk about the sins out there, the sins over there, but what about the sin in here? Jesus reveals that the root of our problem is not what comes into us from the world and makes us dirty. Sin is something that goes out of us and actually dirties the world. No one, therefore, can fix their own internal brokenness with good external things. We cannot make our hearts clean through our own moral religious efforts. In the case of the Pharisees, their efforts only made them dirtier because it made them prideful. Jesus plainly says to everyone, hear me all. There is nothing outside a person by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he names all these sins. See, there are many of us who wrongly believe that God loves us and doesn't love them, whoever them are, because of our good work. That's why God loves me. You need to understand sin. And there are many of us who wrongly believe that God doesn't love me because of my lack of good work. And I would argue you need to understand grace. Presently, our world is in chaos, as Mike referenced, because of the evil of racism. Now, racism isn't simply wrong. It is as antithetical to the gospel of grace as abortion is to the God of life. There are secularists who believe that they know the solution to the problem, but most, I would argue, man-made solutions are either wrong or insufficient because they don't understand the heart of the problem, which according to Jesus is the heart. You may remember back in 2014, a young man named Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager, was shot and killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. Shooting prompted protests, as we are seeing today, for weeks. And at that time, NFL player and speaker Benjamin Watson, who has spoken most recently about our current events, he commented on the issue, and it still rings true. He said this, I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover our own sin. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged, he says, because God has provided a solution for sin that through his son Jesus and with it a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what is truly important in every human being. Good words. You see, as God would have us in this passage, the washing of hands in this passage and the unclean, clean hostility that existed between Jude and Gentiles that's inherent in this practice represented one of the greatest barriers that existed between Jews and Gentiles. I found it very interesting as Pastor Vadi Bakum. Vodi Bakum, Vodi Bakum, Vodi Bakum, Vodi. 
He made a note that he noted that the Jew and Gentile distinction is the only one God made. Man made all others. It could be argued that God made this distinction so that He could one day unify the world that the men and women and mankind had actually fractured themselves. But Jesus' teaching here signed the way for racial and cultural and relational and every sense reconciliation that would come as a result of the cross. Ephesians 2 couldn't say it any more clearly. But now in Christ Jesus, it says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create Himself one new man in place of two, and so making peace, and He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, God's plan was both radical and actually quite simple. Peace would be made by the power of the cross, not the power of protests. And it would be felt first at the table of fellowship. That's the first place it would be felt, where they'd be able to eat together because there would be no dividing cleanness or uncleanness between them. They would have been made one in Christ. You see, racism is a heart problem that only the gospel can resolve because it's completely out of line with the good news of the gospel and the most deepest of ways. See, at its theological core, racism is an external means to justify yourself before God. I'm saved because I'm clean. I'm saved because I'm a certain color. Any gospel characterized by pride in a person or a people's accomplishments or status or whatever particulars you want to add is simply a continuation of a works righteousness it's a failure to bring our relationship with other cultures into line with grace salvation or as tim keller rightly teaches the gospel destroys this kind of pride and fills our heart and removes our need to score points and to feel superior or inferior to other races, classes, or groups. See, the solution to our problem is to repent and to believe the gospel. Many of us, like Pharisees, are hypocrites, pretending we're clean, refusing to admit we're dirty, and we do all kinds of things to justify our sin, to minimize our sin, to hide our sin, to redefine our sin, or worse, remove our sin with our little legalisms. In doing so, we only reveal that I really don't believe I'm dirty, or at least not as dirty as someone else. Jesus sees our dirt. And more than that, Jesus became dirty and defiled so that we could be made clean in him. See, the one who was in every way superior 
humbled himself and became inferior to all so that we might not experience either superiority or inferiority, but we might see actually how unworthy we all truly are, but how much we're all truly loved by God in Christ. I'm going to close with something that Martin Luther King said as we speak about the love of the gospel, which at its core is about love. And he said this in a speech, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about that, he can never advocate violence. For Through violence, you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder a murderer. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And then he said this, And I say to you, I have also decided to stick with love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. Let that be what we talk about, the love of Christ. Let us not post about anything else but the love of Christ. And let us not believe and preach anything else but the love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, for all that you have done, for all you are doing for us. Lord, we trust you. And we come before you humbly knowing that many of us, if not all of us, Lord, pretend we are cleaner than we actually are. We play the comparison game, Lord. We evaluate those around us believing we are better or perhaps believing we are worse. Lord, you have revealed to us in Christ that we are all unworthy by our own choices in nature, but you have loved us and made us worthy in Christ. Let us believe that deeply and share that boldly. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We will be taking communion this morning. We encourage you uh, to...